Wendy's breakfast faves are two for four bucks. Choose between the honey butter chicken biscuit, classic bacon, egg, and cheese, or classic sausage, egg, and cheese. You have to tell a friend, and they'll tell a friend, and they'll tell a friend, and they'll Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. And I'm Sherry Himmer, and you're listening to Society Bites. So for the next 25 minutes, we'll talk about healing and growth from the inside out. Now, remember, you are 100% responsible for your happiness, joy, and well-being. So we've been arguing the whole time what we're going to do, and then you just stood there staring I got off track because I'm not looking at the right little piece of paper. Okay, so what we want to do is kind of recap what we did last time real Mm -hmm. quick, bring that up to speed, finish what we were going to talk about, and then move on to um, a couple of things. Well, what it connects is that last time we were talking about this kind of lie that's been built up in society that life should be painless, should be convenient. And and we're touching on this book that comes from The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. Um, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Um, and we're going to extend that to if there's this lie that's being built up in society. Um, we call a lie a false narrative. It's a story that isn't true that we're telling our society that life should be painless. But how do we know personally if we have a false narrative that's running throughout our personal story? Um, so we're going to tell two stories today. Um, the first one comes, which would have been uh, the conclusion of the last segment, um, starts in August of 2009. Now, the um, Jonathan Haidt is the author of The Happiness Hypothesis and is the co-author of this book. And so he tells the following story, and I'll just take it right out of the text. In August 2009, Max Haidt, which is his three-year-old son, had his first day of preschool in Charlottesville, Virginia. But before he was allowed to take the first step on his 18-year journey to a college degree, his parents, meaning John and Jane, had to attend a mandatory orientation session where the rules and procedures were explained by Max's teacher. The most important rule, judging by the time spent discussing it, was no nuts. Meaning? No peanuts or tree nuts. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of the risk to children with peanut allergies, there was an absolute prohibition on bringing anything containing nuts into the building. Of course, peanuts are legumes. Did I say that right? Legumes, yes. Legumes. Um, Not nuts. But some kids have allergies to tree nuts, too. So along with peanuts and peanut butter, all nuts and nut products were banned. So I'm just leaving that hanging there for a sec. And to be extra safe, the school also banned anything produced in a factory that processes nuts. So many kinds of dry fruits and other snacks were prohibited as well. As the list of prohibited substances grew and the clock ticked on, John asked, so you can just picture him raising his hand. This is a brilliant mind, by the way. Asked the assembled group of parents what he thought was a helpful question. I know it's his assumption that this would be a helpful question. 
Does anyone here have a child with any kind of nut allergy? It's a logical question to ask when the subject's being presented. If we know about the kid's actual allergies, I'm sure we'll do everything we can to avoid risk. But if there's no kid in class with such an allergy, then maybe we can lighten up a bit. And instead of banning all those things, what if we just banned peanuts? Now, I don't know if you, you've never had to do anything like this as a teacher, have you? Oh, absolutely, huh? actually. Um, so when I taught preschool, yeah, we, we had to, we, we were trained to have a no-nut. Now, in schools, it's based off of class, and, the, and, and you will often, like I would say, mm, more than half of the classes will have a band sign outside the door that you can have no-nuts um, if there's a student with that nut allergy. But it's not always the case. So um, some years I have that sign up. In some years I don't. So John tells the story. The teacher was a little bit miffed by that one. And then she just went back to explain this is the, the policy in the school. Um, so let's talk about a little bit how we got to this nut, nutty nut scenario, this caper of nuts. Um, so the research comes from in the early 1990s. They found a study that only four out of a thousand children under the age of eight had such an allergy, meaning that probably nobody in Max's entire preschool probably had an allergy. But by 2008, according to the same survey, the rate had tripled, but nobody knew why. So they started figuring it out that kids, um, see the the argument it's, was it's that about kids, exposure. Yeah, the, the lack kids are of vulnerable. exposure um, created them to have the, the, the immune response to. So the, the Someone being allergic to peanuts, it can be pretty severe, right? Right, it can be life-threatening. Yeah. And some are in varying degrees. So as a teacher, that's always I always want to know sure. if there is a life-threatening So we're not allergy. saying there's anything, you know, mm -hmm. it's good to be preventive. I understand that. But what was discovered was that peanut allergies were surging because, exactly because. Of the lack of exposure. Parents and teachers had started protecting their children from early exposure to peanuts as infants. Right. So, and, and especially in preschool, it's the fear factor and it's a liability factor, right, for schools. That's why that sure. school would have had the whole school ban. Right. Is that younger children may not have had the exposure. And so if they're incidentally exposed at school, then the school's liable for that child's life. So therefore, they're going to go to an all-school ban. It makes sense just from the legal as aspect and that that possible threat. Um, but it is an interesting thing that it's really about immune response and exposure. And I just always remember when with our babies, when they dropped their binky, and I didn't have time to go wash it off. It's like, okay, I'm strengthening my babies immune system by giving them back a dirty binky or whatever, you know, just like, or you clean it off yourself. When you wipe kids it off play or with you dirt, they actually strengthen possibly their we, immune we system. We need that. So I'm going to quote Meng Tzu. Um, and this is my part of the, the podcast. <laughs> so you can now philosophize about dirty philosophize. binkies and peanuts. When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, places obstacles in the paths of his deeds, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. What do you think of that? Let me break it down. So <laughs> the whole idea that we're supposed to avoid risks or hardships or hard work does not, the avoidance of such does not make us better. It does not us. make us human. We become 
I, I, I what, what is the the movie? Gosh, it's where they're stuck in. It's an animated movie. Um, PJ's here. He'll probably remember. Help me remember. But anyways, they're stuck in that um, space. They've left. Oh, what's the little robot that cleans up Earth? It's a Disney. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. About. But anyways, they're stuck up inside the um, yeah. the um, spaceship for you know generations, and they become fat. They become stuck in a wheelchair, sipping smoothies. No immunity. And no immunity. And right. I just I, that that was impressionable upon me. And we are lending ourselves that way. Granted, we're not going to give peanuts to children who have an allergy. We're not going to try to cause harm, but we've got to talk about this idea of avoiding risk, of avoiding pain is detrimental to us just as much as maybe an allergen if we're allergic. So I taught an emotional intelligence class probably eight, nine years ago um, at my first education week, a long, long time ago. And what I, what I realized in there when I was teaching this um, parenting class is what really what it was, EI in parenting. There were stories of parents who would take their children's picture every single day before they went to school. Oh, that's a big thing. And then they'd post it. I mean, first day of school pictures. Every day. Oh, every day. Yeah. Okay. And the argument was, well, if they get kidnapped, then I want to know what they looked like today. And what they were well, wearing. What, what is the message that you tell the child 180 days out of the year of what the potential risk is going to be that day. You build that up over time, it compounds. Great. I love that you brought this up because now you're bringing in, one, there's the idea of we avoid risk and pain, and two, we're hyper-focused on that there could be detrimental factors like getting kidnapped. So in the classroom, in my experience, and anxiety, this is what we talked about in the last segment, is that... um, Anxiety is this growing thing that we're seeing amongst young adults, teenagers, and down to the younger, even primary age um, grades in school. And I would say, you know, five, ten years ago, it was coming up that, oh, we're seeing kids act out more than they used to. And and that's true. Behaviors across the nation, it is not even um, by geographic area, it is across the nation that we're seeing behaviors change in school and and now the talk is that it's based on anxiety but the kids didn't know that they're just acting out well now i have students who are coming to me and saying do you know what anxiety feels like let me tell you it feels like this this. how old is this student we're talking these students so my students are in that between primary and intermediate ages of grades okay and they're saying you know, this is what it feels like to my stomach. Um, this is what my body feels like. It doesn't feel right. They can describe the physiological and name it as anxiety. They can even talk about what's going on in their life that causes them possibly to, to be the way. source of anxiety. Right. But they believe and they're saying, I have anxiety. So so that's an identity issue versus um, they're feeling anxious versus, versus a symptom they've now issue. become. They're becoming anxious, right. and they've probably been talked to by parents. Oh, you're feeling this. Well, I'm hearing about anxiety. So that hyperness, it's like the idea of, well, I'm going to photograph my kid because they might get kidnapped today. Right. We're now telling kids that they're anxious. I'm not saying that those behavior, those behaviors are real. I'm not saying that those feelings aren't real, but we're also 
amplifying their attention to anxiety. And so I believe we're going to see even more. And then they'll do anything to avoid um, becoming, let's just say, having the ability to work with it. Well, then compound it with the idea that we're telling them a life should be painless and risk-free. That that's one of those three truths or three myths. The myths. The yeah. myths are compounding upon each other. Right. So let's re let's repeat the myths really quick because this is the context to what we're dealing with. So myth number one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The myth of fragility. Myth number two, always trust your feelings. The myth of emotional reasoning. So if I feel a feeling, it's real. And we use the, the example that people say, well, that's what I prayed about, and that's just the answer. Okay, yeah. great. But when you hide behind that, you know, it's not saying that it can't okay. be real, but it's got to be balanced. And so I want to clarify, like, I feel anxious because I may not know when my parents are going to pick me up at There's the end thing. of the day. That's is a feeling right. compared with, I don't know when my parents are going to be picked up at the day. I have anxiety. Or because, you see the difference? Because I have anxiety and I don't know when my parents are going to pick me up. I have, I'm going to be this way. And that's the way I always am. And now, and I'm always going to be when feeling. They this come into my office feeling. now, 20 years yeah. later. It's yeah. just that's just the way I am. Yeah. And so they cannot connect with an authentic self. They don't know who their true self is. They're living in a false narrative on a constant basis. Therefore, they're having to medicate on a constant basis. Because life is supposed to be risk-free and painless. And because I don't have that, because I'm with, I still have pain all the time. That pain will compound. And when you run from that pain, no matter how many times you medicate. You're only covering it over. You're not addressing the problem. You're simply putting a Band-Aid on a festering wound. And there's our challenge. This entire societal movement to removing themselves from pain, both emotionally, it then becomes physically. And I'd, I'd simply argue that's the advent growth of the marijuana mindset. Okay. So can I go to the mom wine culture? Yeah, I was just going to ask you to bring that okay. up. You were telling me about so that. So this is a story I heard this week, and and it really connected. We talked about the marijuana culture that we're experiencing and seeing, which I believe is connected to this idea that life should be pain-free and is false. Um, but this mom, um, she, she had a job that she enjoyed. She had a passion about, but she also wanted to have a family. She has a family. She knows... It would be helpful to her family to stay home. And she is one of those people that has a glass of wine every night. Hey, wait a minute. Let and, me make sure I got this right. So you got a mom and there's a dad. Is there yeah, a, there's okay. a dad. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, a children. And children. Yeah, mm -hmm. She's a professional. And she's a professional. And she's a mom. Yeah. She just, she decides it's, it's really hard to do both lives. I'm going to make the better choice. Um, and she has friends who are moms as well that, you know, they go to the park, they bring their kids, and she's realizing it's going to be better for my kids at this point as they were, she was growing her family, that as the family got bigger, she needed to stay home. So she so stays she's home. she's leaving her, her profession Profession behind. to be a full-time mom. Full-time mom. Right. Okay. And she Which finds is a full-time job. What is the biggest full-time job. She realizes it's the toughest job, and she is challenged with it. She doesn't know how to balance herself, and she likes that glass of wine at night. And that let me let me throw in from my world just to make sure I got this right, Sherry. So this is a mom who whose morning routine is to get up, get herself ready, get her children ready, and then she takes off to work. Then she comes home, and she's got a husband who's supporting her in this. And I don't know if that's true. No, I believe I believe she made the choice to stay at home as maybe as the second child was born. That's what, as okay. the family was getting but bigger. But she did have a routine earlier, and then right. therefore she must have had someone sitting for right. the child. Then she she finds herself in that routine of being a full time mom. Okay. Okay, which is tough. I mean, it, it's tough on you physically. 
and you let alone emotionally you don't get to walk out the door and go to something that takes your mind off of it right. it's there with you there's constant no there's no break okay, there's it. rare breaks and moms need a few breaks um, but they're hard and it takes a lot of work to even create the break so anyway she's in that I'm full-time advocate mama. for dads for a second I think dads do too oh absolutely no I agree okay, good. Um, so she's in that full-time mom routine she has friends she has that glass of wine at night as a full-time mom she finds that mm, several glasses of wine help her to get through letting she says mm. I didn't drink hard alcohol but she actually banned it becoming an alcoholic to just wine starting to see a pattern here right and she would go to mom and wine events as a way to escape until she realized she really had a problem what she found was that to and she became sober she had to go through that process is that what she needed was parenting skills she needed the skill set of how to be a mom and how to like herself as a mom so that she could be sober and she realized that all along she was using this idea that the wine relaxes me, the wine makes me um, escape, but it also fueled her depression and made her numb to the feelings of what she needed to face, which was, I, I have to be tough on myself to become a mom. Well, what's happening is she's running from the pain, so well, the pain did. gets bigger, and then what happens is she gets numbed or she loses her awareness, which is emotional intelligence. She's not aware of what's going on. She doesn't see what's out there. She doesn't understand what's out there. And when you don't hear, see, or understand what's around you, that they will control you. So again, we'll, and we're going to do right. this one of these times. And and here's the beauty of this story, okay? And I and I I think it's a good story because I think again these are things we're seeing in our culture. It's easy things to slip into. What is it that helps me escape from my pain? Is that she used and her her husband and her kids said we knew mom loved us. Mm -hmm. But it was a skill set that she needed so that she could align herself with that love that she wanted to have with her kids. But really, she wanted to have trust with them. And, and yeah. the six-year-old even said, I could see my mom would get angry and therefore she would drink more wine to cover her anger and numb her from what she was feeling. And he used those words. Now, what I notice in my office is when they come in, and this is one of the false narratives that we will be addressing is when we lack emotional intimacy, um, meaning the ability to develop mutual trust and respect, that's a lack of social skills. Another way to say that is mm -hmm. a lack of emotional intelligence. When we lack it and it doesn't go well, remember we're hardwired to connect. I can't emphasize that enough. Our happiness, joy and well-being is all set on an individual effort done in a community. Her community wasn't going the way she wanted it to go. It was challenging for her. It, she needed a new set of skills right. <clears throat> from her corporate ones. Yeah, her initial, her skills were not the same. They didn't transfer over, and or I, they should have, I would argue. And I, and I don't know if it was a corporate job. I yeah. don't know what her profession was. But back to universal principles, it would have been interesting to see what would her professional life had been had she been able to identify those skill sets and then apply them at home or vice versa. So I want to bring an awareness into it. You know, we in the last segment, we read the definition of addiction. Or is it this segment? I don't remember. No, last segment. Okay. I want to give the definition of a functional addict. So a functional addict, remember, an addiction is a way to meet your needs and wants in a misapplied or dysfunctional way. Drinking alcohol every single night and then increasing its volume because you build immunity on, on the inside as well um, would be an addictive behavior. Functional addict describes an individual who can socially function despite their primary and comorbid addictions. Now, socially function doesn't mean that it's at its highest level. 
it means that they're or getting it's best by level. right socially and they're participating in social socially functioning means one can hold down a job and lightly manage friendships cognitive capacity is not severely crippled because the awareness starts reducing by the exogenous or endogenous drug that's socially function that's socially or functioning addiction that's what i see predominantly going on in society where we're so asleep at what's going on we're not even aware of our own awarenesses so we function but it's a function at a lower level of understanding and we get by and that's where the challenge is coming in so what we, we can maybe do is start that process of introducing these manifesting behaviors that are false so i'm going to tell a story to set us up and then we'll do this in the next segment it'll be a carryover mm -hmm. and we're going to have tj with us in the next segment to kind of participate on this one and we're going to basically throw him into the the fray because he has no idea what we're going to do we're just throwing him at it so this is a, um, a story that um, i've shared somewhat a little bit of the details before but we're going to name um, this gentleman ralph so ralph by the way ralph is in the corporate world very functioning according to all measures by his own admission he says i do really well in in the corporate world this is his version of it ralph couldn't understand where his out of control temper tantrums originated now how many people have you talked to that can't understand why they go they flip on them he was embarrassed to explain how he berates his wife over the seemingly smallest things he claims an everlasting love for his wife he explains that she's the greatest person he uses the term an elect lady and then something snaps and it's dr jekyll and mr hyde so how does one explain such a dichotomy in behavior so on the one hand here's this man who verbally confesses an undying love toward his wife of almost 30 years yet moments of weakness seem to distort his reality and he becomes like a verbal beast with accusations name calling and severe profanity and then he has a complete and emotional isolation that can last up to three to four days. And I think it can go even longer. How does that happen? Mm. Where does that originate from? So going back to the actual question that we started with. Yeah, how do what I are know these false I'm... narratives that we're telling ourselves? So I think we'll set up the following. And I would say, like, if, if the world is trying to tell you that life's supposed to be pain-free and risk-free and painless. They're selling you And you're hurting somewhere. And you are hurting and you're trying to cover it with something like this mom did or a temper tantrum, then you're going to feel more frustrated because the world says it's not supposed to be Okay, hard. so think about this for, for a minute, Sherry. Imagine you're a six, seven, eight-year-old impressionable youth, and mom and dad teach you that you're not supposed to feel discomfort or pain. They teach you that. So you will then search constantly the rest of your life for ways to, to cover it to medicate it okay i have the perfect example of this let me do the second part if you okay. can hang on to that okay can you remember yeah oh yeah okay it's pretty um, fresh so imagine a different scenario or diff same child but different parents and the parents say yeah that's what happens when the following so how do you want to work on that what are some ways you can deal with that understand that pain's great for you as long as you learned how to moderate it because you can pain is the greatest teacher we have in life all athletes will tell you that it was pain that got them through. What what we have to feel is, I call it the zone of proxim proximal development. Oh, that sounded really, really <clears throat> It's an educator term, but right. no, it's not philosophical. It's an educator term. Oh, excuse me. Um, is that we have to work in a zone where we believe we can, oh. even though it feels hard, and yeah. have a degree of hope 
of attaining success, even though it's hard. But if it's all hard and you have no hope, then we shut down. Which and is we, exactly what anxiety clients right. of mine do. And they have you, no hope. And then you might look like Ralph. So the question yeah. is, why does Ralph feel hopeless, even though he has a trusting wife? What false narrative is telling him to see something? What what false narrative is, I would say, changing his perception from his reality? Yeah, making and some notes And this is going to totally lead into Comcast. Okay, you go. Oh, that is fresh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I knew it was going to get you with this one. It's going to be really good. Yeah, Wait so for you, the next, next you, segment. You warned me. You oh, warned yeah. me you going to throw stuff out. And, and it's going to be so good. So wait for the next segment, and we're going to analyze the world according to dealing with Comcast customer service. Oh, that's scary. That's just scary. So, okay. So <laughs> we'll, Are you guys ready? We'll, we'll pick this up in the next yeah. one. Let's just do a takeaway of what we got today and then set up for the next one where we're going to continue the false narratives and then how to address them. How do we first have to recognize them, okay? So what's your takeaway from today? Um, that, yeah, life should be a little bit hard, but you want it to feel like it can be successful, that there's a balance of that. And my takeaway would be that if you start appreciating pain and discomfort, you start owning pain and discomfort. And then you can be 100% right. responsible and you'll have less. for your happiness, joy, and well-being. The further you, faster you run from it, the stronger it gets. The more you turn into it, just like a bully, bullies are cowards, pain can be addressed. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate your attention. Remember, the goal is to be perfect. The perfect is to make a mistake and get a retake. Everything, all resources you have Inside my head, I try to turn it down, but I can't quite drown it out. I'm tortured every day. These never ending worries pulling on my sleeve. So many times now I was The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, -face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. 
When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.